Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the One Shop Movement Podcast, where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs, business people, anyone that's out there making it happen. We are running a very special series at the moment called Navigating the Fog to Thrive on the Other Side. And today we have a guest that probably epitomizes this topic because his name's Dr. David Martin. He is arguably the number one person on the planet when it comes to this topic because he's been chasing the paper trail of this entire pandemic for the best part of three decades. He featured on the film Pandemic 2 Indoctrination uh, with Mickey Willis, which uh, is one of the most watched and censored documentaries on the planet. And we talk about everything, what his discoveries were. If you are still sitting on the fence, this interview could be confronting, but also it could be the truth to set you free. So sit back and enjoy this week's episode with Dr. David Martin. Okay, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the One Shop Movement Podcast, where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs, business people, anyone that's out there making it happen. And we're running a very special series at the moment called Navigating the Fog to Thrive on the Other Side. And we have uh, arguably one of the most important people on this topic on the planet. His name is Dr. David Martin. And uh, you would have uh, heard my interview recently with Mickey Willis, who created probably the content that that has saved humanity at the speed that it got out to a billion people so quickly. And that content was made really um, debunked, 100% debunked because of David Martin and his incredible history in in this whole pandemic, let's call it. it. It is what it is. So welcome to the show, David. Great, great to be here. It's an honor to be with you and an honor to be part of the story. Great. And I always like to invite the guests to share a bit of their background and story. And for you, your story is, um, I guess you've uh, put the puzzle together. You're like the person that's been in, in, in the rabbit hole of content for probably three decades. So just share a bit about your background because we're going to dive more into what you've discovered along the way. But how have you got to this position today in, in the whole story? Well, beginning in the late 80s, I was involved in, in trying to understand what was going on with government corruption. Uh, some of your listeners will remember a, a period of time when Iran-Contra was words that we used to talk about, when uh, what the government was saying it was doing and what it was actually doing weren't matching. And so I was actually in Costa Rica on the Nicaraguan border, um, revealing a lot of things that weren't supposed to be revealed then. So I have a long tradition of doing this is the bottom line. Um, in the decade of the 90s, I was running treaty-restricted technology transfer. What that means is that we were going into countries that for reasons largely around the end of the Second World War, they were prohibited from exporting military technologies. My job was to go into a lot of those countries, find civilian ways to take that technology out, and then find commercial application for it. So I did a decade of what I would, you know, if you want, if you want a nice fantasy picture of it, it's the the Q lab in a James Bond movie. I was going into these really cool defense facilities around the world and finding cool stuff that we could bring back out. So if you use a cell phone, if you use a computer, if you have a diagnostic procedure that uses anything in radiography, the likelihood is very high that you've benefited from at least one or more of my fingerprints. But <laughs> what happened in the late 90s is I was asked to build a system that would allow us to use 
intangible assets, patents, copyrights, trademarks, those kinds of things to help uh, make small businesses able to access banking capital, which had never been done before. Um, <clears throat> that's the platform I built. And unfortunately, that's how all this started, because when I started looking at the patent records in 1998, first digital records of patents, I started seeing violations of biological and chemical weapons laws and treaties that attracted my attention. And um, and the rest is history. So coronavirus and I have been on a very bizarre journey since 1999. And here we are today. <laughs> and it is very much like um, we're going to talk about pandemic in a bit, but we, we, we do want to move into solutions and that which you're like really actively involved in at the moment. But um, I guess... Uh, yeah, with um, this is very much like, you know, a big, big, massive spider web and, you know, like a Swiss watch has got 150 different parts to make it work, you know, so many different variables to this. In regards to pandemic, what did you put together in that documentary that really uh, embedded down the corruption and, and everything that really... Uh, what we're living in, uh, if you can just explain some of the key points to what you shared in Plandemic. So, so the bottom line is that coronavirus for many decades was known to be a veterinary concern, and it largely was directed at pigs, at dogs, and a couple other, you know, vertebrate animals. And the disease that it caused was what was called gastroenteritis. In other words, animals had very significant gastric problems. Many of them died in infancy, so, so it's a real problem for veterinarian. But in 1998 and 1999, Anthony Fauci at NIAID started working with a guy who figured out how to manipulate coronavirus and make it target cardiac tissue. He started with a rabbit model, cardiac myopathy in rabbits, and he spent 10 years perfecting ways to change the coronavirus model so that it could target heart tissue. And then... The idea came, hey, hold on a minute. We could use this manipulation of coronavirus to make a vaccine vector. So in 1999 to 2002, he paid for the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill to make what they called an infectious replication defective. And let's pause. Infectious means it just makes you sicker. Replication defective means you get sick, but you don't necessarily spread it to your neighbors. So infectious replication coronavirus, they patented it in 2002, and the world first had SARS in 2003. Now listen, I'm not saying that they made SARS, but I am saying that they made a coronavirus that never in its history had ever infected human lung epithelium and cardiac endothelial cells. And mysteriously, after they patented it, somehow or another, it happened. You draw your own conclusions, because that's all you need to know, because... By 2003, when SARS came out, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which lives under the umbrella of the National Institutes of Health, that organization patented SARS and patented a whole genome of SARS. So this thing has been a commercial enterprise since 2002 at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, since 2003 at the CDC, and the whole time, the whole massive racket has been funded and coordinated by none other than Anthony Fauci at the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease. So this is not a pandemic. It is a criminal conspiracy to harm, maim, and kill humans. That's what it is. 
Mm. And, yeah, look, I mean, I always say to people, you know, this is not up for debate anymore. That's a 20 April, uh, an April 2020 conversation because they write it in their books at the World Economic Forum. They've got it all over their website. They are telling us. And if I was to break it down in 60 seconds for the everyday average lay person to say, here's the evidence, here's the facts, what would you say the two or three bits of information that you would just say, well, in 2013, this happen? What would be the, the three things that maybe um, help people understand? So there you go. 2013 Wuhan Institute of Virology Virus 1 was invented in China. It was replicated in 2014 at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in violation of the, ma the moratorium on gain-of-function research. In 2015, Peter Daszak, and I'm quoting, said, we need to have the public accept a pan-coronavirus vaccine. We need the media to create the hype to get to the real issues. We need to use that hype to our advantage. Investors will follow if they see profit at the end of the process. That is a quote. If anybody thinks this is about public health, if anybody thinks that Dan Andrews or any of the crazies across Australia, or if anybody thinks that any of the Department of Health and Human Services here in the United States or anybody in UK or anywhere else, if they think this is about an illness or public health, they need to read what the criminals said. This was about creating media hype to get the public to be coerced, to take something that they would not otherwise take. And it is because, and they said it very clearly in 2016, it was because the public was resistant of taking an influenza vaccine that they wanted everybody to be addicted to, but the public didn't fall for it because it didn't work. That's why the public didn't fall for it. Now we're living in a period of time where they've told us they're doing this. In 2019, September 2019, they said that by September 2020, the world had to conduct a global exercise in the release of a respiratory pathogen so that the world would accept a universal vaccine. That was stated three months before there was allegedly a sniffle in Wuhan, China. So listen, you can either try to fit their story into a collusion, nonsensical illusion, or you can accept the fact and the fact is they admitted to the crime and they are now conducting that crime. And their crimes are now costing people their life and their livelihood. And we must do all we can to stop that. Mm. Yeah, and you mentioned um, that, and I hear you often say, um, let's not refer to this as a, a, a virus and, a, you know, a, a coronavirus as it is. You say this is a bioweapon. Um, do you want to explain what that actually uh, is to people? Because that's a confronting word. Yeah, well, yeah. listen, it, it unfortunately defined in the law, not only here in the United States, but also in Australia. So there you go. We've got the law both places. If you make a device designed from nature, but you chimerically or recombinantly alter that thing to make it more deadly to humans. That's the definition in the statutes of what a bioweapon is. And so I'm not making an allegation. I'm merely stating that their work is, in fact, the definition of bioweapon. You take a thing that does exist. You amplify its harm to humans. That's a weapon. You know, we could call a gun a copper accelerant. Because technically, that would be true, right? It, you know, it accelerates copper. It turns out that it's a gun. We need to start calling things what they are. 
right? And if we're if we're playing the game of saying somehow or another, well, the the public is offended when you say bioweapon. Well, I got an idea. Don't make a bioweapon, and I won't call it that. But let's get precise. What is being injected into people? Unlike any other immunostimulatory exercise ever, what is being injected into people is the recipe to make the weapon in your body. The mRNA is actually telling your body to make a spike protein associated with the model of coronavirus. In other words, you're not getting immune. Your body is being turned into a weapons factory. You make the weapon and you hope that your body defends against the weapon you told your body to make. Hmm. See, what I just described is what mRNA does. But if we told people that, you know what they wouldn't do? They wouldn't line their kids up at stadiums to get shot. And they wouldn't line their Grammys and grandpas and they wouldn't line their moms and dads. And they certainly wouldn't line their children up to get shot because they're not being told the truth. This is a weapon. It is a bioweapons instruction to make your body make the spike protein, which harms you. And then you hope, having made the weapon in your body, that your body defends against it. It is ludicrous. It is gene therapy. It was defined as such in every SEC filing by Moderna and BioNTech. Every filing they ever made said this is gene therapy. And Craig, if I told you to take prophylactic chemotherapy for the cancer you might have, you'd go, hey, Dave, that's nuts. I'm not going to do it. Well, guess what? Taking prophylactic gene therapy for a pathogen that doesn't exist to get a disease that was having to be invented as a combination of symptoms. It's not even a disease. Well, none of that makes sense either. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, it's frightening just hearing the way you explain that. And just, you know, some people don't even understand the concept of what mRNA technology is, but this is first ever into a human body. Do you want to just touch on that? Well, so, so, there's no way that this would have been accepted. If you guys remember, and, and listen, in Australia, remember Dolly the sheep. This was when a bunch of scientists tried to invent a way to clone a sheep. And it bounced all over the place. Australia had a hit on it. Um, UK had a hit on it. US had a hit on it. Singapore had a hit on it. But back then, churches lost their mind. People shouldn't play God. And, 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 and society said, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want Frankenstein labs to be crawling around and all that kind of stuff. So we had a public outcry that said, don't do it. And since then, they've never been able to pull it off. And then Anthony Fauci figured out, if you invent the illusion of a disease, and he said it, remember, this is the Peter Dash quote in 2016. He said, we're going to make a pathogen to create a hype that the media will run with so that the public accepts a vaccine. People. This is not me accusing somebody. This is me reading their own writing, their own words. And, and, and we're being told, listen, I, I got to meet Hunt, you know, your, your health minister. When I was in Victoria, uh, let's just say I didn't play nicely with the government of Victoria. In fact, the last thing I did in Victoria was sue the government in the Supreme Court of Victoria. So. I don't think they were minding when they saw the door hit my butt on the way out. But, but the fact of the matter is, I was uncovering corruption in Victoria. And I was uncovering corruption. And by the way, I have memos 
Dan Andrews would love to never see the light of day. And the bad news is they will see the light of day because here's the problem. The problem is when corrupt people manipulate to coerce a population into doing something that they would not otherwise do, that is a crime. That's not just bad behavior. That's a crime. And we have to make it abundantly clear that those criminals must be held accountable. Mm. Yeah. And just to, for the, I guess, for the audience, we, you know, there's, uh, 30 plus years of evidence here that you've uncovered through patents, through everything. But th from event 201, how did we get, like we've, we've basically had this simulation and then something happened in January where they brought out a test and then they put it onto the world, but they use this emergency use to bring in this experimental thing. Can you want to explain that in logical terms so people understand exactly the step-by-step -step process here? Well, so we have, for the first time in human history, allegedly a disease that we can't diagnose. In, in all of human history, we've, we've never had this. We've never had a disease that is only indicative of a committee that makes a set of symptoms the designation of a disease. So this is bizarre. But it turns out that if we were measuring for a virus, which we can do, by the way, there's things called ELISA assays. There's all kinds of other assays that you can do. As a matter of fact, years earlier, Anthony Fauci said that coronavirus wasn't optimally suited for diagnosis with RT-PCR. So the crazy thing is he started trying to file patents on other ways to diagnose coronavirus. He was the critic of it. He was the one that said it wasn't a good idea. And then mysteriously, we have to make up a bizarre thing. Now, listen, I used this analogy before, but it's the best way to explain this to the general population. Let's say I get a piece of dust from your living room. Sorry, I'm speaking to Australians. From your lounge room, okay? <laughs> so from your lounge room, I get a piece of dust. Now, you have a dog, you have a sofa, and you have a carpet, right? Keep it simple. And there's a piece of dust. What RTPCR does is it takes the piece of dust and it makes a whole bunch of copies of it. And by making a whole bunch of copies, it amplifies it. And before long, you start seeing, oh, it's starting to look like fluffy, fluffy stuff. And then you go, well, that could be a dog hair. That could be a piece of a furniture. It could be from the carpet. So we amplify it more. And then before long, you go, well, it's not looking dogish. So, so we're going to rule out dog. But I still can't tell whether it came from the carpet or the lounge. And then we keep amplifying it. We go, well, I, I'm seeing a little bit of what looks like maybe a finer fiber. So I'm going to guess that that came from the couch. That's what RT-PCR does. Okay. The best you ever get is a hunch that you think it probably came from a thing. Because the problem with RT-PCR is it only amplifies a fragment. So by figuring out that it's probably a piece of furniture, you can't tell it's a piece of furniture, but you, you can probably guess with a high degree of confidence, it's not your dog. That's as good as it gets. That is the standard that is currently being used to say you're sick. Mm. Mm. Like, that's the dumbest thing you could possibly do because it doesn't tell you you're sick. And by the way, that's the reason why so many people who have a test that comes back positive have no symptoms. And the bad news for all of these criminal conspirators is that a lot of people get sick who don't have any of the RT-PCR. So the bummer is they tried to tell a story the lie was self-evident. So all they did was they doubled down on the lie. And it's like a little kid. Think about this. Little kid gets an Oreo cookie, puts it in his mouth. It's before dinner time. he wasn't supposed to have a cookie. 
So you see crumbs all over his face. And what does the little kid do? Did you eat a cookie? The little kid goes, no. Well, what's the crumbs? They're not crumbs, right? They make up worse lies to cover <laughs> the lie that just went before. Well, that's because when you are, in fact, coercing a population, you increase the frequency and the amplitude of the lie so that the public doesn't have time to think. What Plandemic did, number one, is it woke people up. What Plandemic 2 did was it gave people the opportunity to sit for an hour and go, man, there's a lot to think about. And the cool thing is when you slow your brain down and you just listen to the speed of consciousness, you don't fall for the lie. Yeah, and I mean, from the PCR, like to be able to bring in this experimental injection, they used, you know, like the the three letter words, like the CDC, the FDA's, the WHO, and they're able to bring through this injection through an emergency use backdoor. Do you want to explain how they could do that? Because there were genuine treatments available. Oh yeah, and and that's one of the tragedies. Um, the, the NIH had funded research back when we first had SARS and then again when we had MERS, um, which was the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome that came out in 2013. Um, when, we, when we looked at both of those outbreaks, we actually established that hydroxychloroquine was effective about treating SARS, and that's NIH's own studies. And by the way, let's get something clear. Johns Hopkins University, the university named after Johns Hopkins, is named because of hydroxychloroquine. Johns Hopkins University was the university that was, in fact, largely in the School of Public Health, developed for malaria treatment. And the primary malaria treatment was hydroxychloroquine. I don't see Johns Hopkins University taking his name off the building because apparently the thing that actually did get used to treat malaria somehow is now dangerous because it never was dangerous. When used appropriately, it always worked. But let's I got myself distracted there, but that's an important point. So so. Emergency use authorization requires, number one, an emergency. We didn't have one. We made it up. As a matter of fact, on January 29th, Alex Azar, the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary in the United States, actually said there is no basis for an emergency. And then two days later, he signed an emergency use authorization with no new data. None. If there's no new data between the 29th of January and the 31st of January, then there's an interesting question. Who got in his ear? Well, it turns out that we don't have to ask the question because Alex Azar, when he was at Eli Lilly, which is the company he was working for before he came to the Trump administration, Alex Azar was already under investigation for price fixing and criminal collusion in Mexico on tripling the price of insulin to Mexico. He was already under investigation for a crime. So if you were going to have somebody run a criminal racket, do you think it would be a good idea to get somebody who's already running a criminal racket, which then, by the way, was found to have been, in fact, a criminal racket? Wouldn't it be convenient to get somebody who knows how to run a criminal racket as the criminal racket? Sounds pretty good. Here's where it gets interesting. On the 31st of January, when we signed that emergency use authorization, we knew that we had to do something that is anti-competitive and in the U.S., a violation of antitrust laws. We had to suppress all the alternatives so that we could say in April that the only way out is a vaccine. 
And listen, when the prime minister of Australia, when, when the prime minister of Canada, when the president of the United States, when the chancellor of Germany all get on stage and all say, the only way to normal is through a vaccine, like they were reading from a teleprompter, because they were, if, the, if that was a true statement, then unfortunately, we wouldn't have had to make up the lie of suppressing all the other alternatives. We let humanity die. Seriously. Across the world, hundreds of thousands of people died from a treatable condition because we wanted to get to mRNA. That's what, was af- that's what they were after. They said it. And the emergency use authorization was to get all of the traditional parties who would have blocked it. And most notably, let me tell you, the most notable one was the Catholic Church, because no one was more outspoken against the modification of the human genome than the Catholic Church. But when the Pope comes along and says, God gave us a vaccine, (laughs) guess what you won? You won the battle and the war, because now the church no longer has a moral standing on saying that any genetic modification of human life is is wrong because they've already said it was acceptable. So that that's the big EUA. Uh, sorry, emergency use authorization. That's the big EUA win. The big win was it actually essentially neutered the church's objective to morality around modifying the human genome. And that we're not even talking about, because when we understand the implications of that, genetically modifying humans now no longer has its historically biggest opponent which was a church and we chopped the church off at its knees. And now it is kneeling at the throne of vaccine. Hmm. Well, and um, yeah, like some of these organizations that I mentioned there, like you've got the world economic forum and many of these three letter things, you know, when their marketing slogan is you own nothing and be happy, <laughs> you know, you have to be frightened about what we're looking at in the future. So um, do you want to just touch on any of that topic there? Well, you know, I, I, I gave a couple of speeches years ago. In fact, one in Melbourne, uh, probably around 2017, where, where I commented on the fact that Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk used to get up and, and talk about how we should all be afraid of AI, right? Be very afraid of AI. And what I tried to sh- share with people then was, listen to who's saying be afraid, right? You have two people who do not have a very social you know, gregarious personality. You have two people who think technology saves everything. You have two people who don't have a beautiful picture of what humans are. And they're projecting their version of humanity onto a machine and go, that would be scary. And that's true. (laughs) If you're a relatively miserable human being and you imagine a machine that's relatively miserable, that's a bad picture. That's a dystopian future. And what I said to people then, and I say it to them now, is the conversation we should be having is what kind of humanity do we want? Because the fact of the matter is, if you are in the World Economic Forum right now, you want a servile class, you want an acquiescent population, you want people who follow orders, you want robots. That's what you want. You want to reduce the human experience to functional robots. You tell them to do something, they follow the rules. You tell them to do two mile radius of exercise or 500 meter exercise or whatever else, they just do what you tell them to do. Well, here's the problem. That form of humanity is not human. That's a mechanical view of humanity. And what I'm saying is 
we now, you and I, Craig, right now, we have an opportunity to help redefine and reclaim the beauty of a non-compliant humanity. I mean, I come from a long, long, long line, going back to the 16th and 17th century. Um, I come from a long line of heretics. Many of my ancestors burned at the stake, drowned in the river, all kinds of other things, because we knew that sometimes standing for something was better than kneeling for everything. And guess what? Still the case today. <laughs> standing for something is always better than kneeling for anything. And so for me, it's really simple. We have to model the beauty, the elegance, and the wonder of what it means to be fully human and let everybody else make us the envy of the world because even robots look at the free and the liberty and the humanity and go, I wish I could do that. That's our job. Yeah, and you mentioned um, you've been on this journey as probably the most outspoken, pulling apart this whole story. But recently you were, did a lecture and you said, today is the last day you'll hear me being Mr. Nice Guy. And you come out and said, the gloves are off. I, you know, this is what it is. I'm calling it, this is a criminal conspiracy. Um, and you named a whole heap of people and, you know, do you want to just touch on that? You know, you got um, the protected species, Dr. Fauci, um, but like, do you want to touch on that? Yeah, well, listen, I think, I think one of the things that was fascinating is that, and, and I'm going to get really critical here. I told you I wasn't going to be nice, so let's get nice. Let's not get nice. Um, we have a problem. And, and by we, I mean people who have good hearts have a problem. We refer to they as this kind of anonymous other. Oh, they're doing this and they're doing that and they this and they that. And, and here's the problem, Craig. When we provide anonymous power to an anonymous figure, we're actually feeding their ego. The minute we actually call them people, like Larry Fink at BlackRock, like Yo-Yo Ma, and you heard me, right? Yo-Yo Ma, the celloist. And people go, hold on a second. What does he have to do with it? Do you realize how cunning the use of acoustic frequencies is in mind control? Do you think there's a reason why every church has always had chants? Every child has been taught nursery rhymes by singing them. You know, once a jolly swagman said, under the shade of a gula. Right. Why do we do that? Because guess what? I probably heard that when I was four and I still can sing it right now at 54. We do that to program our brains. So we have a whole raft of people, and by naming them by name, and then by understanding what was their role in the story, we bring down the egoic energy that is fed by the anonymous. Because once we know that they are people too, two things are possible. Number one, we can hold them accountable. But number two, we can access empathy. We can actually see that maybe these are broken people. Maybe these are people who are in pain. Maybe these are people who actually have an experience of life that's been terrible and they're getting even for the bullying when they were a kid or the sexual abuse that they had or whatever else. We can actually access empathy for bad people. And that's an important trait of humanity. We still have to maintain the sense of justice and accountability, but have the humility to accept the possibility that these are broken human beings in need of love and repair. This is not just some sort of anonymous they controlled by some sort of 
anonymous deep force from the middle of some dark galaxy. And I'm not saying those things don't exist. I'm not belittling it. I'm just saying we need to make sure that if we, the people, want to stand up, we need to realize that less than 50 people are architecting this, which means less than 50 of us need to get together to actually meet that battlefield and win. See, sometimes I think we get caught by saying they. We think it's this massive, massive, massive list of thousands of people, all who have dark lords emblazoned on their shoulders. Well, there are a couple of those, but most of the people are, in fact, people who put their pants on one leg at a time. They put their shoes on one foot at a time. They don't levitate into their pants. They don't levitate into their shoes. And we need to see them as approachable human beings, because by doing that, the problem becomes a scale we can address. Mm. Yeah, and, and I guess um, one of the people or a couple of the people in that 50 <laughs> would be one of their mechanisms that they've been able to continue with their um, agenda is their ability to use the tools like the internet to censor people like you um, and, you know, and continue on with a one-sided narrative. So they continue to say, we, we trust the experts. Well, who are the experts? Who are these people to be um, scrutinized? And it's, 90, it's still 95% safe and effective. Yeah. <laughs> like well, you know, it's funny. Uh, Dustin Moskowitz, the name I like to pick on, um, the co-founder of Facebook with, with um, you know, the hoodie in chief, um, you know, everybody thinks Zuckerberg's the guy, but Dustin Moskowitz is the guy who is actually pulling all the strings on this craziness. And, and he's one of the early billionaires that you've never heard of. But if you look at Dustin Moskowitz and you look at what he did, he actually had a twofer in this deal. He wanted to actually get the emergency use authorization going, which is part of the agenda. But he also has an investment in Sherlock Biosciences, which is the CRISPR technology, which is the gene editing that will be required to save you from the shots that you've just taken. So the cool thing is he made an environment in which he can say, look over there. It's all about mRNA. Well, he knows that what he's really doing is setting the stage for a permanent dependency on CRISPR technology to gene edit out the nonsense that they put in. Brilliant strategy. And by the way, the only way you can pull that off is to make sure nobody like me gets a big voice. Because if a person like me gets a big voice, then I've created a problem for his crazy plan. So what I did in my speech in Red Pill Expo in Lafayette, Louisiana, is I reminded people that he, he spends a lot of money to clean his reputation. And by the way, all those guys do. The funny thing about that is that um, there's a tiny problem. Every time I say his name, Dustin Moskowitz, it costs him another two million bucks or a million two or whatever it is to go pay somebody to get rid of me mentioning his name. So I mentioned it again, Dustin Moskowitz. There it is. Now we're at 2.4 million. And if I said it again, Dustin Moskowitz, we're now at 3.6 million that he's going to have to pay to get rid of it. And I figure if we all say his name often enough, we all type it into enough browsers, we can actually drain all of his wealth if we wanted to. But, but in all seriousness, here's, here's the thing. We need to understand that while we were being shut down, while we were being censored, our voices actually grew. Do you know how many people around the world now reach out to me on a daily basis to say, hey, thanks very much. Our community is not falling for the injection because of your work, like all around the world. And the coolest thing about it is the more they try to shut me down, 
the louder my voice gets. And so the irony is, here's what they missed. They missed that you would reach out to Mickey. Mickey would reach out to me. We would build a network. And, and what we've done is guerrilla warfare, right? We, we've just gone, okay, that's cool. You shut this down, we'll amplify it by tenfold. Mm. And the fact of the matter is, Craig, this is the best time to be alive. We mm. are part of the founding of what's next. And I love the people. I love the thoughtfulness. I love the communication. And most of all, as Mickey's doing in Plandemic 3, the, the film that's upcoming, what I love is that we're all passionate about solutions. We're not just diagnosing problems. We are about saying, hey, how do we, the people, step into taking responsibility for where we failed to hold people accountable, but how do we start modeling a life that becomes the envy to which everyone else aspires? And that is my mission. You know, our job is to now sit in a world where rather than criticizing they or whatever that is, what, what we're really about is making sure that we model a life that is worthy of aspiration so that we can actually say, hey, we're living. Mm. And the more we do that, and, and that's what, you know, that's what Mickey's going to be doing in the next pandemic. This is solutions oriented. It's about how we're moving forward. And, and, and it's a beautiful story to tell, which is the painting, the first brush strokes on the canvas to say humanity is a beautiful, beautiful story, story that's yet untold. So let's tell it. Mm. So just in, in that point there, we, we, I do want to talk a bit about this just um, next, writing the next chapter. Um, you know, this, you, you mentioned living through this time is in somewhat a, a beautiful experience. It's the ultimate soul test. Um, I was actually having dinner last night with four couples that we've really met through this journey and uh, we've been alienated from society. So we uh, created our own uh, fitness club and now we're having dinners together. And um, yeah, uh, do you want to just touch on, um, you know, living through this time? Well, I, I, I kind of say that I think we all showed up to be exactly here, exactly now. Um, the level of intimate friendships that have come throughout this period where you don't have to cut through the BS. You're, you're, you're either, either you know, engaged and connected or you're not and you're not messing around. Um, I love the no-nonsense relationships, friendships, and beauty that's coming in this moment. And the fact is that, that the quality of experience where depth of soul searching, depth of humility, depth of intimacy is happening at a scale that I've never seen before in my life. And I think we're here because all of the vulnerability of the system that required us to maintain illusions has fallen away. And now we have the ability to stand naked in front of each other going, hey, you know what? I am who I am. You like it? Great. You don't like it? Move on we are going to value the connections that we have. And I absolutely love it. This is the best time to be alive. This is a fabulous, fabulous time to be alive because we, the people, have a chance to finally move away from illusion living and get into reality living. Best time to be alive. And just when people say spiritual game, um, good versus evil, light versus dark, uh, what, what's your definition of that? So, so it's very simple. I think we all have a light within us. I think light only wins when we let that light shine. 
This is not some sort of metaphysical out there. This is about, are you ready to access the thing that's inside of you that says that you know what truth is? You know what integrity is. You know what intimacy and connection are. You know what fellowship is. You know what that is. And if we light that which is within us, the light wins. And if we allow that to be hidden and crushed, then the darkness wins. Thomas Jefferson very famously said in a quote, and I love this one, he who lights his taper at mine receives light without darkening me. What a beautiful metaphor. As I become more of my essence, which is an emitter of light, then I get next to somebody else and they become an emitter of light. Our job is to light the galaxy of humanity and make it shine so that no one ever loses that North Star, that pole star that allows us to figure out our way home. And just um, I always say to people, everyone has a role to play. We have this hero's journey. Um, you're doing what you're doing. I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, what would you say for the hero's journey for everyone just to say, hey, we all need to do our bit, whether it's contribution through fundraising, whether it's sharing information, what would you say? Well, the, I, I hope that we get rid of Joseph Campbell's power of myth and the hero's journey at the end of this thing, because what I want to know is I want to know that we stood together, we conquered this together, we brought the resources that each one of us had together, and at the end, nobody gets the credit. We can't even find the hero, because the we the people stood together, we the people took action, we the people brought our best to the table, and there will not be any fingerprint of the hero, because we'll all have our arms around each other hugging, and nobody's going to get the point to go, oh, it was me. We get to redefine what a hero is, and a hero is a person who does not let the darkness prevail. Let's light come out. And I know that I'm at the end of my time because we got another thing coming. Yeah. But you know who it is, so the good news is uh, we're good. But Craig, man, thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for all of the reach that you've built. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for your kindness. And thank you for being the echo of an Australian accent. As you know, my dear wife, Kim, who is from Sydney, and you know we lived together in Australia for several years. We have a beautiful community of friends. Thank you for being the echo for us of our lovely, beautiful home where that gorgeous Southern Hemisphere comes crashing into the great Southern Ocean. Thank you. And thank you, David. And um, just mention your website so people can reach out to you and we'll wrap it up. Best place to find our stuff is at fullyliveacademy.com or you can find the craziness that I do at davidmartin.world. And on that note, we'll wrap up the interview. And I want to thank you again. Um, you've, you're an inspiration to the world and keep doing what you're doing. And we'll continue to tune in and listen and follow and share everything you're doing. So uh, thank you. You're most welcome, Craig. Thank you. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. David Martin. It was certainly a powerful conversation and, again, reiterates everything that we already know in this uh, pandemic now and he's been chasing the paper trail or has the paper trail uh, for the best part of three decades. So hope you got a lot out of that episode. If you liked it, please share it. Uh, make sure that you tag me in it when you share it. Uh, make sure you give us some reviews because it's important to get 
get great guests like David on the show. Um, if you can provide support by sharing each episode. If you haven't got a copy of my book, you've got one shot, head over to my website and grab your copy there. While you're there, you can also book in a market leader strategy session. This is what I'm doing now to help businesses grow and scale, innovate, help them make money, save money, you name it, really take their brand to a new level. That's what I do in my spare time. So as I always say, at the end of each episode, you've got one shot at life. Go out there and give it your best shot. My name's Craig Schultz. I'm the host of the One Shot Movement podcast.